Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Today I'm welcoming G. Jeffrey McDonald. The Reverend G. Jeffrey McDonald helps mainline Protestant congregations develop fresh vitality without full time clergy. He does this through service journalism, authoring books, consulting with church leaders, and serving as a part time interim pastor. Ordained in the United Church of Christ, Jeff has won national awards for his religion coverage in the Christian Science Monitor, Religion News Service, Faith and Leadership, and other outlets. He's the author of Thieves in the Temple, The Christian Church and the Selling of the American Soul, and what we'll be talking about today, Part-Time is Plenty, Thriving Without Full-Time Clergy. He lives in Swampscott, Massachusetts. Welcome to the show, Jeff. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Well, to explain a little, Lauren, of where I'm coming from in the work that I do, I have found over the course of doing journalism and ministry that there are really thousands of congregations out there, mainline Protestant congregations that have part-time clergy, but have not really mastered at all how to do that well. They have in many cases done so unwittingly, uh, gone to part-time clergy or have, um, at the very least, uh, not been very planned or strategic about it. And so uh, they are grasping for insight into how to do it. And the denominations, when I talk with the leaders there, I often get shoulder shrugs and um, an admission that they don't know how to do it well either, because they're all geared toward a different model. And so that has really driven me to focus my journalism and my ministry work and my consulting work in this area to draw on the knowledge that is out there. There is quite a bit of lived knowledge among practitioners. It just doesn't make its way to the surface all the time. It doesn't get shared effectively and turned into practical insights and and uh, know-how. And so I aim to provide a bit of a conduit for all of that and enable the, 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 the stories that we need to learn from to get to the surface and, and, and then begin a learning process and, and be a, a facilitator of that. So, uh, so that's the uh, concept behind or driving a lot of my work these days. Great, great. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your faith journey, if you don't mind sharing. Uh, tell our listeners kind of how you came to the faith and what that looks like today. Well, I grew up with a Christian family and a, with uh, instruction in those in that direction and uh, participating in Sunday school and coming from two different backgrounds, as with many, uh, a congregational side of my family and a Lutheran side. Uh, And it was the Lutheran side that ended up having a good bit of influence, even though I'm now UCC congregational clergy. Um, My mom mom is from the Lutheran side and um, helped me gain a a real basis in that uh, direction, being confirmed a Lutheran in in my teenage years. And and coming back to it later, you know, like many, I, in high school and college, did not really engage my faith. I wandered and explored a lot of other things. And I, I came back to it uh, in an intentional way in my mid-20s uh, as I was focusing and really kind of going through some uh, transitions, soul searching, and and thinking about what, uh, what I was called to do. Um, and so... I have come to that as uh, as an adult, um, and have have owned uh, this owned this path, and and for and, and uh, it, in that way, I I responded to 
a um, a sense of calling in my 20s that led me to explore further, uh, to focus my journalism, uh, refocus it from business and politics to religion, and to uh, also go back to school and discover that I could serve the church uh, by being ordained and still continue to be a journalist. And so so that's what's opened the door to, to me uh, when I put two and two together and realized I, I could do both uh, if I serve the church part-time, um, it really was clear to me that that's, that that's a calling I could do long-term and, and stepped into it. Yeah, awesome, awesome. What are some spiritual practices that have been meaningful for you? Well, one is uh, is walking, sort of, um, I call it like a, a meditative walking. Mm-hmm. And it I, I didn't quite see it as a spiritual practice at first, but I do now that I, I kind of load up my brain with... Uh, it sometimes with with scripture, spiritual reading, or and it might not be a a lot of reading, but sometimes it's just yeah. a, a passage or two, and it's almost like lectio divina, uh, but on foot, and yeah, uh, and so I will kind of load up with a with a passage, spend some time reading it through a few times, maybe read a little context, but sometimes just you know pack it in my brain so it's good and familiar. And then I walk uh, along, I I live near the beach um, in Massachusetts, and I can walk sometimes seven or eight miles, and um, and, and that's that's on the longer side. A lot of times I just go for about three miles, but I, um, I, it's a discipline to kind of keep my brain, keep my, my uh, mental focus on on what I'm hearing in that scripture and, and what to do with mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah. and so that's really been nourishing the, the act of being, of moving. Uh, you know, I'm convinced that Socrates was onto something with, uh, you, you know, walking with his, uh, uh with, with his students. Um, yeah. they would go up, they would go up into the hills and, yeah. you know, they didn't sit down at tables. They would go up and walk and, right. and process things on foot and the, and the mind, when the blood is moving and the body is moving, but but at a measured pace, not at a frantic pace, it it right. really it really opens up thought, and I have found that to be cl- very clarifying for me, um, as as the insignificant parts sort of shake off and the and the essence of what I'm meant to to retain from the text becomes clear, almost kind of glowing, and I'm grateful for that discipline. It's reminding me, I feel like, I can't quote chapter and verse, but I feel like there's several instances in the Gospels of Jesus teaching disciples while they're on their way type thing, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We just had the uh, Transfiguration Sunday, and uh, they went up on the mountain to pray. And it wasn't just Jesus. It was uh, James and John, and they went with him. Uh, up, and and it was after a period of time of walking together, and I'm sure talking and having some quiet time and moving to a different perspective. That's when they saw him in a new way. There's a there's a sermon right there. <laughs> good. <laughs> I've given that sermon actually. Yeah, well, that's good. I like it. I'm intrigued. <laughs> Well, uh, I I had Jeff on to talk about his book, Part-Time is Plenty, Thriving Without Full-Time Clergy. And I really have been looking forward to this conversation because, frankly, I am an ordained pastor who wants to have a full-time job, but I also see the realities of the economics in our future. I'm hopefully, before this comes out, will have graduated with an MBA, which I did so for the purposes of diversifying my skill sets and, you know, economic earning potential. Um, That being said, I read the book very cynically, or at least with a tinge of cynicism, Jeff, wanting to disprove and dismiss the book. But as I I said before we started recording, um, you, you, you touched on every... 
I think, issue that I had primarily. Um, so I'm looking forward to talking about that with, with you. And for our listeners, this is not the most controversial topic we've talked about because as we already discussed offline, Jeff is the Red Sox fan and I'm a Yankees fan, and we're still somehow able to come together in Christian unity despite our differences. It's a miracle. <laughs> it is a miracle. Um <laughs> Uh, well, let's. I'll hold my tongue here. Um, talk about, if you can, what inspired the book. Well, uh, I was in a pastorate after after having been ordained for fifteen years. I found myself in a in a pastorate where that was especially uh, intense in its situation uh, in its circumstances uh, because it had, uh, while I'd always served in part-time ministries since I was ordained in 2000, uh, this was 2014 when I started at this other church, and they had abruptly gone from full-time to 10 hours a week uh, wow. in their pastorate. Yeah. Um, they basically stuck with full-time until the very end, and when they called me, they said, um, we're getting ready to wind the church down. We think we're going to close in about two months. Uh, this is a church that's uh, been around since 1635. Wow. And yeah. And and they're like, we're out of money. We're closing up. Uh, will you come and um, you know, do a last few services for us? And And it was during that process that they realized that actually they didn't want to close and didn't need to close if they could mm -hmm. transition to a different model and make a few other significant belt tightening changes. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the inspiration for the book came from my really trying to get up to speed over uh, the first couple of years on how do you do this? Well, how do you, how does the congregation have impact? How do the people mature as followers of Christ and, and witness and really develop and grow when when the pastor doesn't have much time for much of anything except preparing and leading worship services. Yeah, um, yeah. May, maybe attending one meeting a month or or one Bible study a month, but it's uh, pretty limited what you can do from the pastoral standpoint. And when I saw that there were basically no books on the subject, there are books on part time ministry, but it's more about uh, how to how to balance. Uh, multiple jobs and family, and it's from a pastor's perspective, how the congregation can adjust its orientation to be partners for the pastor, that was not developed. And so I proposed a grant um, to the BTS Center in Portland, Maine. I said, I would like to go learn from congregations that have made this transition from, from mainline Protestant churches that have made the adjustment and uh, and I would like to learn from those that are doing better, not worse, after making the change. Would you give me funding to go and visit them, learn from them, write articles, and perhaps write a book? And they said yes uh, to my proposal, and I spent a year doing research, and the book is the result of that. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting uh, points I want to hear hear about and highlight here. Uh, one that I think stood out to me for sure just starting off is about 43% of mainline churches have part-time clergy. And this was, book was published, what, 2020, 2019? So, yes, tw 2020. It's not inconceivable that that number has gone up, correct? Right. It's very likely, I mean, we're now in 2022, uh, the we've been in pandemic for two years. Uh, so many changes have happened. It's very possible that that number is higher and very possible that it, that it now exceeds 50%. Which is just mind boggling to me. Perhaps it shouldn't be. And that's the point you're trying to make though, that more than half, I think, or close to half at least of mainline churches have part-time clergy. And the biggest point I think you're trying to make in, in the book is that uh, use the word uh, that part-time is not a kiss of death. And I don't know if you want to talk through that kind of false assumption and what why you think that is a, a, a false notion. Sure. 
what I what I found in visiting churches is they often have come to believe that it is the kiss of death or could be because that's what they've been taught, yeah, uh, largely from their denominational leaders and from their peers. Is they say, oh. Uh, you don't want to go to part-time clergy. You want to keep it, keep the position full-time as long as you possibly can, because that's because that's the draw, that's the that's the golden goose. That's what is enabling you to uh, provide programming that people want to come and and experience. And when you cut back, you're going to be you won't be able to offer as much, and the church will just be on a path to decline and eventual closure. Um, that's really not true. It, unfortunately, the way, the way it sometimes plays out is that uh, a church will believe that idea, and so they will hang on to their full-time clergy like my church did in Newbury, Massachusetts. Hold on way too long. Yeah. Uh, hold on and t- hold on to full time long after you can afford to do it, where you're drawing down endowment funds or you're borrowing against your building in order to pay, and so they'll hold on way too long, and by the end of that they've run out of money. Sometimes they've run out of people, or if they <laughs> still have, or if they still have people, the people are too burned out and too far along in years to have the energy to share meaningfully in the ministry. And then they finally shrug their shoulders and go uh, reluctantly to part-time clergy. And of course, they have nothing to work with. They have very little to work with anymore. And yeah. so and so it does decline. And then the denomination says, look, see, we told you so. It doesn't work. Um, that's a red herring. It hmm. actually can work very well when a congregation sees what it needs to do and makes the transition, sometimes you go from full-time to three-quarter time. Uh, And the congregation barely notices. Uh, And and yet you're making some intentional and strategic moves that are empowering the lay people to to share the ministry in in a meaningful and spiritually healthy way. So... You can see that happening, and sometimes they're intentional about it. Sometimes they'll they'll plan for a year or a year and a half before they begin to make the transition to three quarter or half time, and um, and so what I've seen is uh, dozens of examples where it does work uh, because they've taken a whole new approach to doing church and doing ministry together. They haven't just lopped off half the pastor's job and and said, all right, we're going to continue as if that never happened. They're not doing that. They're rethinking, how do we minister together? And and that's where the real uh, awakenings and, and growth happens. Yeah, so I'm intrigued by this because, again, I'm thinking as someone who serves as a full-time pastor about all the stuff that can and, and should I guess, be done throughout the week by a pastor, you know, everything from community outreach to uh, home visitation to obviously worship leading, worship planning, sermon preparation, meetings, Bible studies. I mean, the list obviously goes on and on and on. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about this because you have a, a three models of part-time clergy. So I, don't if, I don't know if you want to engage in that right now, but I'm, I'm curious, like, what are some things that, that like, a pastor – that shouldn't be sacrificed in the name of past part-time clergy. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. Well, there, there's basically a renegotiation that goes on uh, in a healthy situation where the uh, the lay people and the pastor do some rethinking of the pastorate and and some restructuring of it. And so, uh, it, it's a, an important point here is that um, when when the decline happens, as folks told me uh, in the on the synod and um, uh, that uh, level of ministry, that on the judicatory, the judicatory level, with what they have seen on this is that, um, in fact, some of them tell me, you know, the reason part time doesn't work is because the pastor only has time for planning and leading worship and doing pastoral care with an older 
congregation usually. And that takes up all their time. And so you don't have any bandwidth left to do the things that generate the lifeblood, to be present, to be present in the community, to be building relationships with the scouting troops and the other folks who use the building and to be serving on boards and to be out there uh, leading mission projects that partner with other organizations and, and thereby building relationships that lead to folks visiting church and getting involved. Um, And, and that's a, it's a good point. Um, But it, it assumes that all you can do is sort of lop off all these things that the pastor would do if they were full time. Yeah. Instead, there's a more what I see churches doing when they when they transition is they strategically support the lay people to do some of what the pastor used to do and they don't just leave them hanging, they share the ministry and they empower them uh with with the resources and the and the training uh and the support that they need so that uh, folks are doing ministries that they find very meaningful and that uh, transition into a, into a type of church that is more uh, a fulfillment of what we would read about in places like first Corinthians 12, that talks about the spirit being distributed among members of the body, not, not all consolidated in the head. Yeah. Well, tell me about, you have in the book, The Three Models of Part-Time Clergy, and kind of give a, a brief overview of what those look like. Sure. The The models that I saw after, as a matter of discerning patterns uh, from my research in the fields, uh, this these models that I saw were in, in churches uh, of all types, suburban, urban, multiple denominations. The first one is the equipping model, which is one in which the the pastor, instead of doing uh, services or or sort of providing goods and services as a as a provider or a dispenser yeah. of, of ministry, uh, is is teaching the people how to do more of the ministry arts. And so you see the pastor equipping, for instance, lay people to lead a Bible study rather than doing it himself or herself. Um, so uh, that can save a lot of time for the pastor, even if the pastor is um, quite hands-on with it, uh, working with with a few leaders. And you can see the same with preaching, that yeah. if a pastor can take a Sunday off each month— uh, which I have seen a number of churches do. The pastor takes a Sunday off each month. That pastor just gained 10 to 13, 14 hours. Right, right. That's a big chunk of gain. And there's a lot you can do with that. That's almost, you know, that's a day and a half of work. Um, you can be involved in a lot of different uh, uh, types of activities in town or um, or in the church. Uh when you do that. And so how do you get there? How do you not sacrifice the quality of preaching and the quality of worship leadership? Equipping is part of how you can do that. And so so that's uh, where the pastor takes those who have a gift. Sometimes it's teachers who know how to speak in front of people. So they they take them and they say, they're not afraid to speak in front of people. They can speak in front of middle schoolers. My goodness, yeah. of course they can speak in front of uh, uh, church people. Um and and they they get, they use those transferable skills and and people's passions uh, and and gifts and, and give them some of the basics in how to prepare a sermon and 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 that can take a few different forms. We can talk about that further. But that's the concept behind the equipping pastor to teach the people to uh, do pastoral care, to do preaching, to do um, evangelism, and so forth. Uh, Second model is the ambassador model, which is one in which the, as one pastor told me, the lay people run the church. Basically, as uh, was how he put it, that uh, they put together uh, most of what is going to happen in worship. They kind of organize it. They get it together. They uh, they apportion the positions. They're just not 
dependent on a professional to kind of do it all for them. They they put they put a lot of that together themselves, and then um, and in this and in some cases the uh, the they might they might share. Uh, there's different ways that they that they get it done, but um, the concept here though is that when you have a, a lay people who can do a lot in the church, the pastor can be freed up. Like in that example where you take one Sunday a month and the pastor is um, freed up from planning and leading worship, the pastor can strategically be out doing those things that I was just talking about that that generate the lifeblood. And so you strategically take that chunk of the pastor's time each month and you deploy it so that the pastor is involved in those areas where it's most promising, where... Um, you know, if you're in a in a retirement community, you can send the pastor over to lead a Bible study at a facility where folks are um, don't have a, a chaplain or a ministry presence, but uh, you know, or or at a military base, you can send the pastor over to get to know the people there and be a presence and maybe take part in some some life, uh, some part of the life there, and. And there's so much that can come from that. So that's the idea. Um, there's many different ways that the ambassador could uh, do that. So that's the second model. And the third is the multi-staff model where you have a part-time pastor and you have another part-time person who will, um, or more than one other part-time person, and and they're sharing the sharing the load. I can say more if you want to hear uh about how that how that works, but it's essentially kind of specialization, and it doesn't require as much of the lay people uh, stepping in. It's a but it's a reallocation. It's strategic. It gives the pastor time for other work outside the church, and um, can be a win win for congregations, both urban and and I've seen it done in rural settings too. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear more, but there's more questions I want to ask you here. Plus, I want to give people a reason to buy the book, right? So, um, you do develop that more, I think, in the book. Um, this is something you you mentioned earlier, and it's something that I've noticed. I, I remember, so I'm serving, currently serving right now as a hospital chaplain, and I think you use this example in your book about denominational meetings happening like during the day, and you, I think, you participating in some denominational, excuse me, denominational activity that happened like in the evening or something, and you were like the only pastor there, and it was a bunch of chaplains, which you weren't, you know, it wasn't that you didn't want to be with chaplains, but you're just noting how denom- denominational systems and structures are set up for full-time clergy. I know in, in my own context, there was, I think in the summer, there was like a revitalization conference that my denomination hosted, but it was, again, like Monday through Thursday when I was working. I would have loved to be a part of it and talk about revitalization, but working during the week as a as a chaplain, it wasn't even a possibility. So talk about, I don't know, it's it's a big, big thing. I don't know how much you want to dive in here about denominational systems and structures set up for the full time model. Yeah, it is. It is a big thing. It's uh, it's built on a on a premise that that that's what clergy do. We would have a, a covenant day in, in my region uh, for all the clergy to come and kind of, you know, be together and meet with the conference minister. This was always on a Tuesday from eight to one uh, during the day. I'm, I, w- I could never go yeah, because um, I was always working on my other job. And same was true for all the other part-time clergy. And there's a growing number of us. And, and, and it was, and so you get the, you feel that you're not really being seen by the denomination or or that you're not really being understood and then your all your people are not really understood either or that you just don't matter and um or don't don't matter enough to adjust the schedule you know full-time clergy could get there on a tuesday night yeah. um but they don't do that uh they they reserve that for meetings with their lay people who are working during the day um, well, what about uh, what about us who work during the day? And um, so, yeah, there are many uh, examples, and it goes it goes beyond that to um, to systems that 
uh, you know, I, I know of candidates who have been uh, pressured to leave their jobs. Those who have worked in secular employment and are seeking a call to seeking a, to be ordained um, are, are are can be pressured to say, you know, you really need to quit that job as a uh, software. Uh, programmer or as a, a software engineer or as a uh, teacher or whatever else you're doing, because that's what a really committed person in ministry would do. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, those are those are systems and biases that are absurd in a world where almost half or perhaps, you know, more than half of congregations are need part-time clergy. So it just comes from this, like, you know this idea of of what commitment means that is that is just um completely antiquated and um and just not not real that that those who serve part time are every bit as committed as full time people they just are serving in the right capacity for that congregation uh just like if you're a parent um if you go off to work, uh, does that and and you're with your kids, you know, only a few hours in the evening? Does that make you less committed to your kids? Does that mean you're not uh, you're 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 a part time you're a part time parent, and then and therefore just like no, nobody would say that. Um, so there's a lot to say on this, and but I'm sure you have other questions. Yeah. Uh- it's a, it's a. I, I think I see another side of it too, Jeff. Is, um, from my perspective, at least, middle judicatories tend to ask a lot of pastors to serve on denominational boards and committees and roles, which again is going to be harder and harder for for part time pastors. So there there needs to be. I, perhaps maybe your next book, Jeff, can be, you know, for denominational leaders about adjusting to the new realities of <laughs> part-time clergy and economics. So I'll have you on if you ever write that book again. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Lauren. I it, it is a it's a lot of the, what I do in the consulting work I do is working with the judicatories to help them uh, to to do to help them be as a support for congregations that they haven't always understood. And it's, it's, it's very important and it's, but there's tons of opportunity here, mm-hmm. uh, which is really worth, really worth noting as well, that, that, that these are flexible congregations. These are congregations that do, uh, that are resilient, that are innovative. Um, they are, are used to uh, rolling with a variety of circumstances Um and and they're right sized for clergy who have other uh, other interests in life, other passions, other streams. You know, there's a lot of talk about work life balance and yeah. about uh, and about you know being a, a multifaceted person, uh, not just being kind of a one dimensional uh, person or, uh, or 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 just being defined 100 percent by your by the job of the desk that you sit at uh, Monday through Friday, nine to five, our world has, you know, there are 57 million freelancers in America, according to the freelancers union. Um, that's about a third of the workforce. That's a huge, that is a huge amount of people. And these are self-employed people in everything from the, uh, from the, from the trades to the arts and, when they can work part time in the church uh, and serve the church and receive a steady paycheck, it's not enough to pay all their bills. Okay, well then they have another area. They have time to go and work in their other area and structure their day so that they can pick their kids up at school and still prepare their sermon for Sunday and still ply their trade or work in the arts as a writer as a as a dancer, as a musician, as an artist, as a tra- uh, you know, as a as a plumber or a, a coder, um, you know, our our churches need to catch up with what's happened in the world of work and make room for these congregations to to thrive. They they can do it. They're ready to do it. 
but sometimes the denomination needs to just kind of adjust to to help them and accommodate where they're already going. You know, one example I've been giving a lot of thought to as I search for my next call is like I'd rather be like 30 hours a week making like a healthy wage, like a really respectable healthy wage than getting a quote-unquote full-time salary that's really not commensurate for the cost of living in my you know in my context. Um, but then, like you said, that would free me up to, to have the family flexibility or other income income flexibility type things. Um, so let me let me shift this a little bit because um, this is the, the most cynical side of me was reading this book, thinking about you and you touch on these things, and this is what I appreciated. Um, but the really ch- the big challenges I see them are student debt. Um, Finding healthcare, especially you know, if you have a family, what do you think that churches and denominations can do for for you know someone who goes to seminary and and takes out you know fifty hundred k in debt? Um, I I don't know what because it's a it's a bigger problem than we can probably you can probably discuss and and you just even you address but probably can discuss in the book. Um, what are your thoughts just though here? Yeah, it's a very important question, uh, Lauren and. And there are two parts of it, I think. One is, what do we do with those who have already taken on the debt? Right, And then right. what do we do going forward? Yeah. Um, for those who have already accumulated the debt and and have felt like they need full-time work to justify that or to, to pay it off, um, the I, th- I would like to see denominations do the best they can by those students helping them if they can't find a full-time pastorate that that works for their financial needs then to help them put together a couple of pastorates uh if that's uh you know to see that possibility to to help them do that if they feel called to full-time equivalent ministry it might be in more than one setting and we yeah. do see more and more of that yeah. uh, another possibility is to help them to train, to transfer their ministry skills, their theological training, and other work background, which many people have, um, and educational background, to to repurpose those skills, to transfer those skills, or to learn new skills that they can do alongside the ministry if, if they have really been uh, counting on a, uh, on a church employment uh, landscape that just no longer exists, then then the denomination uh, could could help them in in that in that type of approach. Um, the church, the denomination can't just lean on local congregations and say, "Look, you have an endowment. Uh, you need to spend that on a full time salary for that person, even if you even if it means going into the red year after year." That yeah. is not. The, right. That is not a that is not a fair thing to expect of a of a local church. That's presumptuous of of uh, the various uh, uh, f- futures that these churches are trying to navigate. And so, that's something I would say on that. And then in the future, uh, making theological education much more affordable is really key, so that debt levels don't go high. And also using our theological education uh, resources to train lay people as well as uh, clergy, train them in specific areas um, to be pastoral counselors, to be Stephen ministers, to be uh, evangelists, to be lay preachers. Um, you, you know, we need to stop putting all all this hefty theological. Uh, an expensive education on just one person in the congregation—that's that's lunacy, and it's irresponsible stewardship, and it doesn't fit with where the world and the church are going. Yeah, two two examples in my context of this I want to highlight. Uh, so my pension fund, the uh, pension fund, the Christian Church—I know they have a program specifically, like you mentioned, of, of some like job training, or like interview coaching, I'm not sure what the word is, but to help transfer your, you know, pastoral skills into like a quote unquote secular job context. So you can get a part-time job if you need to rather than, you know, God bless Amazon, but working at Amazon for $15 an hour is kind of, kind of rough when you, you know, you've got what a master's 
of divinity tech or debt bill. And another example, my seminary, Phillips Theological Seminary, they've they have a, a I think it's a pretty good burgeoning like kind of lay training that's very affordable. Uh, I know I in in one context I sent a couple students their way you know for that training. So I think those are two great examples, and I'm sure there are many others of of denominational and in, in kind of institutions doing work on this level. Um, one other qu- kind of hard question I do need to ask you is, and maybe again this is just my own bias as like a fairly quote unquote youngerish <laughs> pastor with kids in a family, you know, I would love to be in a context where I could get full-time benefits. Um, so, I, and this is, again, this is from my bias and context. Like, I, I feel like in some context, this might push out young clergy or churches might just be like, oh, you know what, let's just go to part-time because it's cheaper and we can find someone cheaper and that's going to edge out someone looking for a full-time job. What are your thoughts there? Well, I think I, I understand that uh, concern and thinking about for for part time or and for younger clergy that if they're looking for full time work and need that amount of income, uh, you know, they may be uh, trying to find it in in the church and and can do so. I, I think I'd refer back to my um, to to my prior answer as well though that I think a lot of it has to do with the uh, openness to serve more than serve in more than one setting um, that's increasingly common that, that 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 people value ministry skills they just don't need or or afford uh, or can't afford you uh, at, at that in one setting so you have to work in multiple settings and and that's um, an important part or work in multiple fields to, to serve in ministry and whatever else you do, uh, teaching or, or doing something with a different part of your brain, um, or a different part of your body, whatever your, uh, skill sets are and your, and your passions are. So, um, I just think that, that it, it's, if it, a lot of it has to do with expectations and it's, uh, and, and for Young people to be hoping that the church is going to provide a uh, a livelihood in in one area, um, and in one setting, go to one church and stay at that one church and and earn enough to pay for your yourself and your spouse and your benefits and all of that. It's a little bit like you know in some of the Rust Belt towns, kind of hoping that the that the factory job that was there in the 1950s and 60s is going to reopen or is going to stay open or provide the livelihood for you. It's, it's just, uh, it, it's at the, the two phenomena are actually quite related and, uh, and it's, it's just not an economic reality at this point, but there's plenty of opportunity in ministry for young people. You just have to look at it as one part of what you do. It's not the ticket to your entire livelihood to be in one setting in one ministry but rather to to recognize that for the majority of church history and in the majority of the world today ministry is something that people do alongside something else uh even in the middle medieval days it was um something that uh you had priests but they were not depending on that for their livelihood they were working as clerks and uh, administrators and other uh, types of positions. They were. It was more of a status, like being a notary uh, or or a justice of the peace. It wasn't necessarily like your your livelihood. That's a more recent phenomenon, and it's arguably not going to be tenable long term to to see it in such a narrow way. Because sometimes we get biased by the by the post-war experience. And we say, yeah. you know, we measure everything against the reality of like 1965. Well, that was more of an aberration than a new norm. It was, it was a blip. It's gone. And yet the church has been around for 2000 years and has a bright future. We just have to see the, the broader trends and, and be part of what the Holy Spirit is doing. Yeah. Well, we're, we're running long on time here, but I want to ask you one more question if I can, before we take a break. Um, 
maybe tell me real quick, where are some examples like this would work or like wouldn't work at all? Like a like church contexts where, you know, a part-time clergy would work very well that you've seen, and then maybe church contexts where really shouldn't 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 go after part-time. Like either they just need to close or they're not commit, you know, they need to commit to full-time, that kind of thing. What are your thoughts there? Well, uh, yeah, I think that um, in in cases, the, the part-time is, is most promising, I think, in cases where you do have a corpus of lay people who are excited to be partners in the ministry with the pastor. You don't need a ton of them, but you do need some who who can see uh, another way of, of being church together, who are excited to be practitioners more than they are to be consumers, uh, to be players more than they are to be spectators. Um, that's uh, an important part of it. And if you have that kind of congregation, then you have probably the most valuable uh, raw material in this equation. Uh, for for a very bright uh, transition, and so so those those churches would do very well to do it. And you can, by the way, go to part time um, temporarily, and uh, it you can go back to full time if you need to. Um, of course, of course, that affects the pastor's life, and the pastor has to be interested to do that. And uh, you know, you don't want to mess around with somebody, somebody's uh, <laughs> uh, life if they if they can't yeah. you know unwittingly but 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 there is this uh, it's it doesn't have to be a permanent change if it if it just isn't workable uh, for those churches that 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 otherwise but you know in some cases a a church has um, I, I I had served in a church that that had uh, an older population, a smaller population, um, a significant endowment, and they tried to go part-time, and it really wasn't um, something that they could be partners in. And so they decided to go back to a full-time arrangement, and I think it was probably the right thing for them because they had the resources to pay for it. They could be innovative in their approach and... Um, uh, to 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 how to how to do that and it and it just um, seemed like the right thing for them. Good, good. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with G. Jeffrey McDonald, and uh, these closing questions. I always tell folks you can take these as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what would you like to do with that day? That kind of thing. Well, uh, yeah. If I if I were Pope for a day, you know, along these lines of what we're talking about, uh, I would I would love to see just a a showcasing of the vitality that exists in so many congregations. Uh, these are just gems on our landscape they offer something like the smaller mainline uh, congregations thinking of those with fewer than 100 people in worship many have fewer than yeah 50 yeah. in worship they are bringing people together uh in communities where people are increasingly organized by affinities and by um where only those who are like-minded are congregating together. Um, it's it, so the churches are, are bringing people together across generations, across ideologies um, in ways that are just incredibly valuable. And they're doing it in a small space where relationship, true relationships get built around following God through Jesus Christ. And uh, it is, just such a gem for our for our society it's um it's it's very much overlooked it's taken for granted it's um and i would just love to see uh more celebration of uh, 
the the powerful ministries that that congregations are doing together and and the liberation in a way of the of the lay people that uh that we see in in churches that have made these these transitions um so that's probably what I would like to like to happen if I, yeah. if I were pope for a day. Yeah. I like that because I've I've heard this in other contexts too that you know at a, at a conference for instance the the speaker or highlighted or celebrated speakers often a church pastor of a big you know hundreds of thousands church but we need to understand those are the exceptions and by far the most common are the smaller churches yeah yeah I I, I attended a, a, a an event on church security uh, one time and the speaker was from one of the denomination's most affluent congregations. And and he was talking about you know this is what we do at our church we have security detail every Sunday at all right. at all six entrances and uh, you know we have we have cameras and we have uh, uh, you know hidden cameras and and everybody was just there like saying you know that's nice but we can't afford any of that yeah. you know like, right. like when is this session going to be over because it's totally irrelevant <laughs> to everything we're doing. <laughs> Yeah, um, this is yeah. Uh, we'll move on, but that's a fun conversation for sure. Um, <laughs> a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I someone from a different tradition than my own, um, who I'd love to talk to and learn from is uh, John Wesley. Uh, you know, I. I'm UCC myself, but I have so much appreciation for the resources of of the Methodist Church and the uh, United Methodism has is is very generous with making those available. And I learn so much from uh, from the approach and just the sensibility of of uh, a, a very uh, of, of taking on a of developing a method. Uh, he he helped found a denomination that actually has method in the name and and thinks about being systematic about the the making of disciples and and using you know being practical being innovative uh you know the circuit riders was was a uh, emerged out of out of some of his vision and that is extremely relevant for for today and so I'd love to know how John Wesley saw the landscape and the challenges that that predated Methodism and and how he kind of brought his 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 radical faith and his um, pragmatic intuition together uh, to read the landscape and respond with something that's really nothing short of genius. Hmm. Yeah, that's an intriguing answer. It makes me want to learn more. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Uh you know we could see this as as a time of uh i mean it's always hard to predict because we don't know while we're living it uh but you know on on one side uh one way to see it is is uh, on, a, on a more negative side we might see that um that there is a a fracturing of uh, of of much of what has had held our society together, that we see some fragmentation, some tribalism, uh, and um, and regression uh, in, in, in toward looking out for ourselves. Like that might be, uh, and 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 not looking out for our neighbor as much, and and that might be a a, a theme that. Uh, but that might be just a, a foil or a relief against which some uh, truly wonderful new things emerge. And uh, so although those are, are trends that, that we need to be concerned about, I'm also very hopeful that this would be a time where we would discover in the church world about uh, that that we, we finally, the priesthood of all believers became a reality in our time, that 
mm-hmm. that that people reclaimed the mantle that that all of us are to be ministers and not just uh, leave that to a certain class of of professionals, um, but would embrace something of the 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 heart of the gospel in a in a way that that maybe got uh got got confused or lost for a time there but is um is returning in, in much of the way that we are recovering these days some uh some some knowledge around how to uh raise our own food or uh how to, how to do certain things for for ourselves uh, and not always depend on professionals in so many areas of life the pendulum might be swinging some and and that could be good for communities and relationships and and discipleship yeah well you kind of addressed it there in your answer do you have anything else you want to share about the hope your hope for the future of christianity uh i do hope that we are are in a time when uh when the discipleship and the and the the calling of of ordinary people is is appreciated uh more 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 prominently um i think it's appreciated on a small scale but i i'm hopeful that um j- just like the there were times when the when the stories of the saints uh got uh organized and codified and and lifted up and um converted into uh forms that we could turn to and remember uh, i'm hopeful that that will that that will happen that 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 more of our um exemplars will be will be recognized and will be developed as in into the mature uh followers of christ that they are meant to be and and to just really encourage that trajectory and 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 let it be instructive uh for for future generations um i think we're going in that direction uh i think i think clergy have often had uh the spotlight um and and some of our big uh you know sort of celebrity uh figures in in Christian leadership have kind of dominated for better or for worse, uh, often for worse, but, um, <laughs> uh, but I, I just, I just think it's, um, it's, it's, it's a, uh, a, a flattening of the leadership in a way now and, and, and a real, um, in, in a way that's truly consistent with the biblical, uh, witness to the early church. And so, I'm excited to to see that development and 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 hopeful that we'll be able to to live into it. Yeah, I'm thinking. I think as we're recording this today or yesterday, speaking of a a big figure, problematic big figure in the church. I think Brian Houston of Hillsong, I think that's his name, just recently resigned. So certainly uh, a sad example, timely example of that. Well, the book is Part-Time is Plenty, Thriving Without Full-Time Clergy. Highly recommend it, uh, written pre-COVID, and I think very relevant in our time. Uh, tell our listeners you know, where they can get a copy of the book and how they can connect with you. Sure. Uh, you, can, you can get a copy of the book uh, through online channels, uh, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, they all carry it. Uh, the publisher is Westminster John Knox Press, um, and you can find more about me at gjeffreymacdonald.com, and yeah, that'll do it. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate the conversation, and uh, may God's peace be with you. And, with, and also with you, Lauren. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. 
Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.